passing torch across China and prepared the Chinese nation for the communist takeover. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches were planted by that man. Have you ever read the story of John Sung? It's an amazing story. He and Watchman Nee together were the two men that prepared a nation for that demonic onslaught and they laid a foundation which is now reaping its harvest so somewhere between 100 and 200 million Chinese have turned to the Lord in the last few years hallelujah now that's what the locusts have been doing for a long time the locusts of humanism and rationalism is just about eaten away any respect as someone who just believes God like a little child. I better not spend so much time on the other ones. The second locust is the locust, or it's the stronghorn, if you like, of occult Satanism and witchcraft. Is that not ravaging our land? Do I need to tell you about that? You know about that, don't you? Let's go on to the third one, which is the locust of false religion. It's a tragic fact that most false cults have their origin in the United States. Now that's a fact. The locusts have come to this nation because of its proud declaration in God we trust and of its previous history of being the most generous nation in the world to send the gospel around the world and for that reason it's earned the particular hatred of the demonic powers. I guess the United States and Britain together we share that honour. They're going to get these two nations by any means if they can because of the damage we've already done to the kingdom of darkness. Because of the sin of God's people, God's allowed a period of judgment. We're told in Joel chapter 2 and verse 25 that this was God's army sent to chasten God's people. And I believe that if we don't repent, we'll see more chastening. I'm talking collectively about the church at large now. I'm not speaking particularly, although if it applies to you, well, repent. The third locust is the locust, I think I said that, of false religion. And the fourth one is the locust of materialism. And of the love of things and acquisitiveness. And the love of this world, making the hearts of many grow cold towards the Lord. Now these locusts have ravaged the land, and an army has gone across the land and stripped the land of its heritage. Now as you read on, in, Ze in coming back to the book of Joel now, you will find that that's the background. We read in verse 25, that the consuming locust and the chewing locust are my great army, says the Lord, which I sent among you. But he also promises in verse 23, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. He will cause the rain to come down, the former rain and the latter rain. In the first month the threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So again, we've got this tremendous promise of harvest. While God's allowed his people to be chastened, he will not allow them to be destroyed. Amen? And following on from the army of locusts, 
God now promises the army of the Spirit. Now that's the setting. So when can we expect this army to be manifested? After the locusts have done their devastating work, when we've, we're ashamed to lift up our heads, when the nation's been ravaged by the effect of these things, when it all seems to be lost, that's just the time when this army is going to be revealed. And I want to tell you that that time is now. And already, as I've already quoted to you, the statistics alone convince me that God is now raising up that army. All over the world, indeed. The Spirit's moving. Hallelujah. So let's just move on. Verse 28, it says there, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And then we begin to quote that wonderful quote we've already read in the New Testament. And then verse 32, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. Now, if this great powerful move of the Spirit does not precede the Lord Jesus' coming, how then multitudes be saved? Can you see the, the theology that many of us were brought up on? That it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and when, you know, they, they, they correctly prophesied the Chaldean army stripping the world of everything but it seems to me that they lost that other prophecy that after this, God's going to do something. Which is to send back a mighty army, this time it's the army of the Lord, in the power of the Spirit, to reap the greatest harvest that we've ever experienced in the history of the whole church. Hallelujah! Peter Wagner, in one of his recent uh, articles, commenting on the amazing growth of the charismatic movement, he said that this is the greatest movement ever to hit the human race be it secular or religious, there has never been anything like this to grow with such rapidity and to touch so many nations and to indeed to affect the whole earth. Something new and mighty is happening in the world. Hallelujah. Right. At Pentecost, this army was loosed in Jerusalem and this was the former reign. It was, if you like, it was a local shower that just wetted Jerusalem. It's a foretaste of what God is now building up to do worldwide. Indeed, already in certain parts of the world, the rain's falling. Come to Africa. Or even come to parts of India. And you can see it. Go to certain parts of South America. But, you know, beloved, we ain't seen nothing yet. This is just the drops of something so mighty. And I tell you, Britain... And the United States and Western Europe are not going to be left out. They're going to be deluged with this latter rain. Praise the name of the Lord. So the local shower over Jerusalem was just a foretaste. But now at the end of the age, it's, a, it's, it's to be a worldwide deluge wetting all the nations. And this is the means that Jesus is expecting by which he will make all his enemies a footstool for his feet. You see, he's just been waiting expectantly for the army. Amen? He's been sitting down, waiting for that right time appointed by the Father when the full fulfillment of Joel's prophecy is released upon the earth. 
and a mighty deluge of the Spirit touches the nations and multitudes of people now begin to move in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I see happening. I see it happening now. So, I'm absolutely committed to producing a prophetic people. Not only that they may prophesy to one another, but by their prophesying to one another, they might produce this mighty army which fearlessly just rolls across the nations and devastates everything demonic that tries to stand in its way. Hallelujah! Now remember, we get a foretaste of this in the beginning of the church age, and so we know what it's like. Remember what the disciples were like before the Spirit fell upon them. They were fearfully living behind closed doors, afraid of the Jews. And then the Spirit fell upon them, and I tell you, it wasn't the goosebumps down their spine that made them into mighty warriors. It's what they could now see. When Peter said, we are witnesses of these things, he doesn't just mean that he went to an empty tomb and found the body of Jesus was not there. Something had happened by this prophetic revelation that his eyes were opened and he could see the throne and he could see the glory of Jesus and he didn't care if all of Jerusalem came against him. Hallelujah! All glory! And as he stands there with this mighty crowd of Jews, many of whom were the crowd which cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! We will not have this man to reign over us. We have only one king, and his name is Caesar. And Peter shaked in fear, because he had not yet had his eyes open prophetically to see. It wasn't the goosebumps down his back, although I love goosebumps. Don't you? I like the experiences of the Holy Spirit. I like to feel God. It's a perfectly legitimate dimension of Christian experience. But I tell you, that's not what, it's not that which will make me a mighty warrior for Jesus. What makes me a mighty warrior for Jesus is what I can see. And while Peter stood there, speaking to this crowd, and he says so boldly, this Jesus whom you crucified, I mean, that's really asking for trouble, isn't it? God has raised him up and God's made him both Lord and Christ and now Peter is looking to heaven and he can see the throne. He can see Jesus sitting on it. He understands how David prophetically saw the same thing and spoke of the same thing and he was just living in the vivid reality of what he could see. And that's why, of course, when Stephen, a few chapters later, is about to be stoned as the first martyr. And he's smiling. And he said, devil, you are so stupid. You're really going to pay for this. And he was just looking up into heaven. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You see, now prophetic vision has come to the church. Amen? So let me spend a few moments now talking about being a prophetic people. What does it mean to be a prophetic people so that we can become that kind of people? In Scripture, the prophetic is always associated with the Holy Spirit. When, you know, i just say this very quickly, I've not time to develop it. When the Spirit fell upon the 70 elders in Numbers chapter 11, verse 25, when the Spirit that was upon Moses was transferred to them, what was the first thing they did? They prophesied. 
when the Spirit fell even upon Saul before he was made king, when he was just a young lad who was having his first experiences of the supernatural God. And Samuel said that the Spirit's going to come upon you, Saul, and you're going to be turned into another man. And he said, you will prophesy. 1 Samuel 10. And what happened? He prophesied. And then as we come to the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out upon those disciples in the upper room, what was the first thing they did? They prophesied. Now, we don't know what they said in Numbers. We don't know what Saul said in 1 Samuel 10. But we do know what they said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 11, because the Bible tells us it says that they began to declare the wonderful works of God. You see, the heart of prophecy is to speak out the the magnificence of God. Now, that's the heart of prophecy. I'm not saying there are not other dimensions which are not legitimate, but, beloved, that's where, that's the heart and centre of the thing. And that's what I want to get across to you tonight. Now, there are three words in the Old Testament to describe a prophet. The first one calls him simply a seer. He's one who sees. I want you to see that the heart of of prophetic utterance, the heart of a prophetic people, the heart of a prophet is that he has to be someone who can see. And that's what the very name means. There's a second word used later in the latter part of Samuel's ministry, which is an intensified form of the same word, and now it has the meaning one who sees clearly or one who sees intently. So as you walk on in your prophetic life, your vision should get clearer and clearer and sharper and sharper. And the third word that's used uh, means one who bubbles forth. So what the picture we have here is that someone who sees something and as he focuses on it, he sees it more clearly and as a result, that which he sees touches him in his spirit and it bubbles forth out of his mouth. When you see things prophetically, it touches you down here and you actually you can't keep quiet about it. Amen? Now that's the heart of the prophet and that's the heart of a prophetic people. So if we're going to be a prophetic people, we have to be a people who can see. And then we speak out what we can see. You see, when Peter preached on the day of of Pentecost to that hostile crowd, he was just speaking out what he could see. He could see David. He could see Jesus upon the throne. He could see how David's prophetic words were now literally fulfilled in the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could see that the poured out spirit was to produce the army that was going to enforce the, the prophetic Psalm 110 and was going to take all the ground from the devil and put it under the feet of Jesus. He could see it. Hallelujah. And beloved, I tell you, the Spirit of God wants to bring a people that can see. And if we become a community that can see, and if we see the power and rule and authority of Jesus over the Rio Grande Valley, I tell you, the demons won't mean a thing to us anymore. Remember what I said to you last night? The whole of the Elisha ministry, it hinged upon what he could see. Do you remember I said that to you? He could never have had his ministry unless he could see. And we come back to the same thing again here. Because every one of these scriptures, the heart of it is is an ability for, for the prophet to see or for the prophetic people to see. 
And that's my cry, increasingly for myself, that's my cry for you. Oh God, will you bring forth a prophetic people who can see? So let me now mention some of the things that we need to see. A prophetic people say something because they can see something. And when the Spirit fell at Pentecost, they began to tell the wonderful works of God because they were seeing it in their spirit. And at last they were beginning to see. They could see the throne. And they could see it was Jesus sitting on that throne. And they could, for the first time, see who he really was. And that's the first thing a prophetic people need to see. They need to see something about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you come with me to the book of Revelation, because this is the very heart of all true prophetic ministry, I'd like to take you to the book of Revelation. I'd like to take you for a couple of nights through the book of Revelation. And I want to show you that as the events going on on earth are being unveiled to us with all their terrifying hostility, every few chapters... John is suddenly lifted up into heaven and he gets a, the heavenly perspective of the whole thing. the lamb upon the throne he sees all heaven worshiping him he sees these great elders of the lamb and all they can do is to throw down their crowns and say oh holy 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 is the lord god almighty and all oh, the cry of heaven now have you ever seen it beloved you know when we go in for spiritual warfare and intercession i would strongly recommend that every hour at least you stop doing battle and you do what they did in the book of revelation and you get into the glory and take a fresh look at jesus and i tell you you can come back to the war then with the utter certainty of you know that the one whom you're proclaiming is the mighty ruling conquering king and at the same time he's the lamb that was slain what a contradiction and what a mystery And all heaven is in continuous ecstasy. I mean, they can't stop just worshipping and adoring and glorying in the Lamb. And they are not even the beneficiaries of salvation. But it's true. Oh, God, open our eyes. I was in Africa a little while ago. It was in Ghana. It was an old, massive, great tin hut affair, dirty and dank and it was just a mud floor one primitive little PA system with one little mic that was about to you know, come off its wire it was all pathetic and there was all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these lovely beautiful African people that had walked for hours to get to the meeting after a hard day's work and they were prepared to walk home again about 10 o'clock at night, get home at 1 o'clock in the morning, work the day, start walking again at 5 the next day to be at the meeting to just be so up the word of God I tell you I'm happy to lay my life down for such people 
And we got to this meeting, and just as we were about to preach, there was a massive thunderstorm. Rain pelted down on this tin roof. The power supply went off. There was no public address system. So what do we do? Well, I tell you, for six hours, I was privileged to be part of the most wonderful praise meeting that I can remember. They just uninhibitedly, for six hours, just adored the Lamb. And I thought, we've got something to learn, beloved, I tell you. I tell you, the dust filled that place. I was nearly suffocating with the dust. But I'll tell you, what a glorious way to die. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, God, loose something. Don't you cry. Oh, God, loose us from whatever holds us in bondage. Open our eyes that we can see that we're taken up with the glory and we forget about the time. And who cares about the preacher, even if it's me? <laughs> just so long as we can totally and wonderfully glorify the Lamb on His throne. Now, beloved, that's the heart of the whole thing. Now, I could turn you to Scripture after Scripture, and I just want us maybe to, just to, to turn to chapter 5. And uh, there is the... Lion of the tribe of Judah, just taking the scroll out of the hands of the one who sits on the throne. It's like, it's really, it's Jesus the Son taking the, the title deed to the whole earth. Because that's what that scroll is. It's the title deed of ownership. I haven't time to develop that, but if you, you think about it, you might understand what I'm talking about. It's, this scroll was the redemption document for all of creation. And it had to be a man that could take it out of the hands of the righteous judge. And it had to be someone who could pay the redemption price. And the only one who qualified was Jesus the man who'd shed his blood. And he takes the scroll out of the hands of his father and says, Now in my humanity and because of my blood, I have a right to reign. Oh, glory. Can you see it? And every demonic power that illegally and illegitimately is trying to hang on to a little bit of this world, I tell you, they, and rightly so, begin to shake in their boots and begin to tremble because they know that relentless ruler is coming to take them out and to loose the whole of creation from its present suffering. And the way that he's going to do it is by raising up the second army of Joel. The first army of Joel brought the devastation and the second army of Joel brings the restoration. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? A spirit-filled people marching in the power of God's spirit and just sweeping everything before them. If the Chaldeans were so terrifying in their natural strength, just think of the terror in the hearts of the demonic powers when God's people begin to move in the supernatural strength of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you can rightly take all the scriptures of Joel and you can turn them around and say, these now legitimately apply to God's army. They formerly applied to the Chaldean army. But now they apply to God's army. And they're going to bring a total recovery of everything. Hallelujah. And so let's go down in chapter 5. But one of the elders, verse 5, said to me, Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, 
And of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns, which of course is symbolic of total, absolute authority. The horn is the symbol of power, and the seven is the number of perfection. All power and all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Hallelujah! God has given him a name which is above every name. Far above every principality and dominion and power and authority and rule and every name that is named, not only in this age and also in the age to come. Hallelujah! And what's his fullness? The church. The spirit-filled church. It's the fullness of him that fills all in all. Oh, can you see it? You see, we've got to have our prophetic eyes open until we're not thinking about the trivialities of this temporal life. We've got our mind set on the things which are above. I don't mean that we forsake this earth, but rather from the power of that heavenly perspective, we're now in a position to take over the earth for God. And we do it by, first of all, sweeping the heavens clear of demonic darkness. And then in the cleared atmosphere, I tell you, the evangel of the gospel will have an incredible new power and effect. The army fights primarily up there. It's spiritual. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. What did he mean? He meant that it's the heavenly ground that has to be taken first. And then from the rule of heaven, we can now legislate what happens on earth. That's what the devil is illegally doing now, isn't it? Where does the devil rule? He's the prince of the power of the air. It's spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. There's a polluted layer of heaven. Not the third heaven, not where God's throne is. That's not polluted by demonic arms. But there is, a, there is a layer of heaven that's been polluted by demonic forces. And from that heavenly realm, they rule over the earth. And that's the realm that we have to penetrate. And we, that's the realm that we have to set up God's spiritual cities. And that's the realm where we have to mobilize God's spiritual army. And then arm in arm with the mighty legions of angels, we're going to sweep the heavenlies of demonic darkness and change the very climate upon earth. But you've got to have eyes to see it. You need prophetic revelation. And if you will let God, by the Spirit, open the eyes of your heart, you're going to begin to see something. And then you can understand what Peter saw and why he could stand the way he did. You'll understand what Stephen saw and why he was so calm and victorious. You will, of course, supremely understand the, the incredible rulership of Jesus, even while he was being crucified. My son-in-law recently uh, went to uh, Malaysia, which is a Muslim country. You're not allowed to evangelize in a Muslim country. There is a Christian church there who were living in their dugouts holding on till Jesus comes. But God told Reinhard Bonker to have a crusade there. God simultaneously told my son who organizes his crusades that he was to go there and he was to organize a crusade. When he arrived in Kuala Lumpur, the Christian leader said, Go away! 
We've got enough trouble without you coming. If you start your activity, the Muslims will drive us out of town. Now, my son-in-law was, was staggered. He's just a, if you ever meet him, maybe one day you will, he's just got a childlike simplicity. He's, not a, he's a very intelligent young man, but there's a childlike lamb-likeness about him. And he's a young man who can see. So when he went to Kuala Lumpur, he wasn't seeing all the power of Islam. He was seeing the rule of the throne of Christ. And he and my daughter booked a room and started to pray and started to tell these demonic powers that Jesus was coming in to have a crusade. And there was nothing that they could do about it. And there wasn't, it's a fact, there wasn't a single Christian leader who was with them. In fact, they were, they were telling him to go out of town and not to cause trouble because we, we don't want to end up in jail because of your crusade. But they continued to pray and the spirits of fear and, this, and all the other things began to lose their hold. Because if you can see in the heavenlies, not only do you see the power of Christ, but you can also see the demonic powers losing their grip and having to run. Amen? So over a period of several weeks, or months actually, one by one, these Christian leaders had a change of heart. I'm not blaming them for their attitude. It was a demonic spirit that had put a terrible fear upon them. The fear of Islam is a very real spirit. And one by one, God, through their prayers, broke the power of this spirit, and these Christian leaders began to even start to think, yeah, well maybe we could have a crusade. And then they were allowed to preach in the churches. My daughter was going around these churches. There were quite a lot of large churches, two or three thousand. And she was preaching eight times a week in the churches. And she was calling forth the army of the Lord. That's what she was doing. And she was releasing that anointing which would bring forth the Joel army of God. And over the period of the next few weeks, 1,500 intercessors were gathered together and they started to pray and to now they began to wage war with those demonic powers that rule in Islam. The first thing they did was they decided that, that they were going to get release for the crusade. I won't tell you the whole story, it would take too long. Just simply to say permission was granted. You've no idea the battles that went on. But permission was granted, and then they said, well, we would like to use the main football stadium, which is never allowed for anything of a meeting of that kind. Even the Muslims are not allowed to use it for their rallies. He said, well, we need it for Jesus, please. Well, but there's a, there's a, there's a football semi-final that week. Well, could you move it, please? And, it, and it, is a, it is a fact that they were granted the use of that stadium and the football semi-final was moved to another date. You see, even the God of, even the God of football has to bow down to Jesus. Yeah. Hallelujah! There's lots of other things that I could tell you, but let me just say that they finally had the crusade. They tried to stop Reinhard coming. His visa was granted in bond about 12 hours before the crusade started. He flew straight from Nigeria to... to without even a, a night's sleep. But he got there and God somehow graciously gave him strength and used him. 50,000 people gathered in that stadium. And it just went on increasing through the week until thousands and thousands of people were saved. And the Christians were walking around saying, but this is impossible. We weren't even allowed to speak to one person on the street before. How can we be having a crusade with more than 50,000 people coming? 
Well, the answer is, be well, because Jesus is Lord. That's how. And all you need are some people who can see. Who can see prophetically, who can see in the realm of the heaven. They can see the Lamb on his throne. They can see the absolute rule and glory. And I tell you, when you're in the heat of battle, you take a little bit of time off and let the Spirit of God lift you up into heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what it means. Go up and have a look. And take a good gaze upon the Lamb. Just take a gaze of all the elders worshipping. I tell you, once we were having a baptism... This was in Nepal, where there isn't permitted to be a Christian church. If you get converted in Nepal, you go to jail for a year. And if you evangelize, you go to jail for six years every time you do it. I used to go for three-week stints and keep moving. But in 1972, I, at that time, after 25 years of mission activity, there were something less than 400 believers in the whole of Nepal. And I went to this little meeting in in Kathmandu where about 80 people gathered. They were all the leaders of all these groups of Christians. There were 16 groups of Christians in the whole of Nepal. And while we were there, the Spirit of God fell upon the lot of them. It was just like a mini Pentecost. Every one of them prophesied. It It was amazing. And they went back to these little groups in the power of the Spirit. Up to that time, because of the missionary teaching, there wasn't one of them that had been filled with the Holy Spirit. But now, this little group became the army of the Lord. Now, in Nepal today, there are more than 200,000 believers. Many have gone to prison. But that doesn't make any difference when you can see. And as you probably know, there's all sorts of political shakings going on, which I believe are going to bring the release to the Christian church. And we're going to see multitudes of that nation coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is Lord. And nothing can stop him. And one occasion when I was preaching there, we were, I was actually, this is the truth, I was actually preaching to a, convent, a conference of 800 people in a government school in a country which doesn't allow the Christian church to exist. And uh, many of them had not been baptised because the test of whether you are a Christian is whether you've been baptised. The devil always thinks he can pull you back until you're baptized in water. So this night, God laid upon me this message, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Forty-seven people publicly came forward to be baptized, and eleven of them did actually go to jail. And I want to tell you that I don't regret, I don't think how terrible, I knew the, the anointing upon my life to preach that message. But while we were having this baptismal, service and it was just a little tidy place just a little uh, river which we all went down to rather quietly and as we were standing there I had a vision and what I saw was I saw this little group of people just about a couple of hundred and these people being baptized and it just opened up to an incredible amphitheater and I saw it as I don't I don't have many visions I've probably had not more than four or five in my whole life but I saw this little baptism open up to a great amphitheater where hundreds of thousands of angels and redeemed saints, saints were all sitting and they were all looking down on this baptism and they were just absolutely excited and I tell you I was so refreshed by that If you're going to walk in the refreshment of God, you've got to be someone who can see in the heavenness. 
No, I better not talk any more on this because it's time's running away. Let me just say this in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. It's a famous verse, but let me put it in its setting now. And here is John the Apostle, verse 10. And he's had all these incredible revelations of the throne and of the Lamb and of the worshipping elders and the worshipping angels and the, the worshipping uh, creatures. And then it says in verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I tell you, beloved, if you get this heavenly revelation, it will cure you completely from the folly of worshipping any man. It will clear, it'll clear you completely from even the mistake of worshipping an angel. Because what you see in the heavenlies is so altogether different. You couldn't possibly confuse the two. Not when you've seen it. And as John falls down to worship this angel, the angel says, See that you don't do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. What's the testimony of Jesus? I can see him on his throne. I can see the Lamb. I can see the angels. I'm part of the adoring company. I'm part of that glorifying throng. We said, we've got the testimony of Jesus. We can see the Lamb. We can see the throne. We've got the testimony of Jesus. How can you be such a fool, John? Can't you tell the difference between that and me? Can you see it? Don't worship me. Don't do that. Haven't you seen the throne? Haven't you seen the Lamb? Worship God. And if you've got a, a fresh continuing revelation, I tell you, you will never make that mistake of thinking that you're something special or thinking that anybody else is something special. You won't even make the mistake of worshipping the glory of angels because the glory of the Lamb upon the throne is so infinitely superior. We need this testimony, beloved. And then it goes on to say, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of revelation. Now, can you see what that means? If you can see the throne and the Lamb and the glory of heaven and the worshipping angels and the, the, the indescribable magnificence of the whole thing, then that very revelation becomes the, the, the seed, the, 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 the source out of which the prophetic ministry comes. And if you lose that, you can prophesy all sorts of rubbish. But if you've got the testimony of Jesus, that is the spirit of prophecy. And a prophetic people, they have the testimony of Jesus. They're adoring the Lamb. They're, they're worshipping. They're, they're seeing the throne. They're, their spiritual eyes are open. They're, the glory comes down and, and fills the, the, the place where they're worshipping. And then as we, as we drink in that, that amazing heavenly scene, then we're ready for anything. Who cares about life on this earth? Who wants to stay on earth? You know, once a few years ago, I was privileged to 
ministered to a man and his whole family that came into the church when I was pastoring in, in Bombay. A beautiful family who were all nominal Christians. They all got wonderfully saved. He was a very, very high official in the Reserve Bank of India. Shortly afterwards, he contracted cancer of the liver. And uh, he died. And, and that family, uh, they live next door to me. And, and they, they just, I mean, just like my family. Um, I can't tell you the closeness of the relationship. And when this man was uh, about to, to die, um, a good crowd of us, because this is the Indian way, a whole company of us, you may, say, you may find this strange, but this is the way, I mean, everything's done very publicly. There's no such thing as privacy in India, and so all the relatives were there. Quite a few of the um, bank officials are all in this, this large room, and, and I remember being there too, and this man was sitting in bed and he was going fast and he, he looked at his watch and he said to the people, I have just three hours. Now his mother was the most wonderful believer that I think I ever met. She's about 97 now and her face sort of shines like a, a well-oiled walnut. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's absolutely gorgeous. And her, her husband, this man's father, was a preacher. And she said to me, she said, I've always wanted my son to be a preacher. Instead of which, he's become this great bank official. He got saved much, much later in life. And as he sat in the bed, he called people to him one by one, and he exhorted them to give their lives to Christ. If they were big, some big official in the bank, he just told them straight. He said, if you don't turn to Christ, you're going to hell. And he took his little son... Uh, who's now a young man in his 20s, on his knee, and he said to him, Ashok, he said, I'm going to, be, going to go to be with Jesus, and you be a good boy, and do whatever your mummy says, and I'm going to see you very soon. And uh, there was this old granny sitting there saying, At last my son's become a preacher! <laughs> At last my... And she was... <laughs> there wasn't a bit of sorrow or sadness in the place. I tell you, the glory came down in that place. We just began to sing hymns and worship God and praise. And then, as the, precisely the third hour drew near, this man sat up in bed, and he simply said, he's come. And he just put out his arms, and there was a glow that I can't describe upon his face. And he was gone, and it was precisely three hours. And I tell you, there were a number of people saved in that room. And I remember one of his nieces, a 21-year-old girl, and she said, she said, now that I've seen this, she said, there's no fear of death left in me. She said, I just wanted to go with him. <laughs> I just wanted to go with him. You know, and if you live in, in that heavenly revelation, I'm not saying that we are careless about the earth or any of these things because God loves this world. He gave his son for the world. And so we need a great compassion for the world but our inheritance is up there, not down here. And sometimes, I, I, this is the honest truth, in fact it happened to me this afternoon, sometimes I just get so impatient uh, to go and be with the Lord. Sometimes when I touch heaven, have you ever done that so, viv 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 so vividly? I, I, I can't describe to you what it's like. But in another way, I, like Paul, I don't want to go yet because I want to be here when, 
when this mighty revival breaks forth. But that's all I'm staying around for. And because I love my wife. <laughs> so my, we, have a, we have asked God, we were, we were married together, of course. We were saved together the same night. We were baptized in the Spirit. We were baptized in water the same time. We were baptized in the Spirit the same night. We've always moved together as one flesh. And I said, Lord, would you please arrange for it? that in your good time we can go and be with you together. I couldn't bear to be without her on earth and I don't think she could bear to be without me on earth. There's just no point. I'm with her there. Well, I don't know whether God will grant that wish. I, haven't, I can't say I've had his word on it. But I tell you, heaven is very real to me. Very real. And I tell you, we need a prophetic vision. And the heart of a prophetic vision is to see the vivid reality of the heavenlies and to be just taken up with that scene. Okay, so the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Come with me to John chapter 12, just for a moment. Oh my, I've just looked at the time. Just a few more minutes. John chapter 12, verse 20. Verse 20. Excuse my loud blowings. <laughs> I have to apologize every night. It's going to sound funny on the tapes, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I sometimes think that when I think of these tapes have a habit of going all around the world. And I think, what, and what will they think? <laughs> Verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. You see, that really threw them into a spin. I want to ask you this question, particularly if you are a pastor or leader. If someone came to you and said, Sir, can you tell me how to see Jesus? Could you answer the question? Well, if you, want a, if you want a seminar on house groups, yeah, we can do that. Or if you want us to teach you on how to be a good husband or a good wife or to bring up children or, or about finances. Or we've, got, we've got lots and lots of massive and wonderful teachings on all these things. But I just get the feeling that Philip was taken absolutely by surprise. I've never had anybody ask me that question before. And so he goes and tells Andrew, and they go and tell Jesus. And Jesus says, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you, when people start to want to see Jesus, and I believe there's a spirit beginning to move in the church, because it is this spirit of prophecy that's going to produce the prophetic army, and the first cry of that spirit is, See Jesus! And if that cry is not in your heart, then let God put it there. Amen? Once we've seen this, we've got something to say about God. Amen? Now, prophecy, we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, prophecy edifies the church, right? And the word edify, the Greek word for the word edify, it's a word 
hoikodomio, it means to build a home. It's, it's to build a place somewhere to live in. So when we start to prophesy, when we start to speak in tongues, we build a residence for God in our own spirit. You know that, don't you? When you prophesy, you edify yourself. You build an ever-expanding capacity for God to live in you. That's why I always urge people, go on continually speaking in tongues. It increases your capacity for God. And in the same way, a church which is rich in prophecy, it's getting an ever-enlarging capacity for God to live in the midst of them. Prophecy edifies the church. And as a result, the church becomes a habitation for God in the Spirit. Alright, have you got that? I'll move on quickly. Now, we, when we move in prophecy, and when our eyes are open to see, we, have, we now have something to say about God. We have something to say to principalities and powers about God. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, saw into heaven and saw Jesus. And beloved, when he cried out, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, the demons couldn't stand it and they began to scream out. They said, silence this! It's the worst news we've ever heard in our lives! That these humans on earth can see that heavenly realm. If they start to see that heavenly realm, they'll get so infected with the glory of heaven that they'll come against the powers of demons and they'll drive us off the face of the earth. Shut him up! Shut him up! Shut him up! You mustn't see. Once you see, we're done for. Once the church begins to see will be defeated by the revelation of what they see. We must stop them seeing. Can you see that? And once we've seen, we've got something to say. And we speak to the devil. Well, doesn't he know? Of course he knows. But he's terrified in case we know. And once he knows that he's facing a church that knows, he knows that he's had it, he's finished. It's all over. That's why the great purpose of the prince of this world is to blind the minds. That they might not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the one thing he doesn't want them to see. But God has commanded light to shine. What for? That the glory, they might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, once we see in that heavenly realm and see who Jesus is, we see the Lamb and all that that Lamb has done for you and for me, the glorious way He's given His blood and redeemed us by His blood of every toehold of captivity to the devil. When you've seen the glory of the throne and the power of it all, who cares about the, the pathetic bit of power the devil might wield? It says nothing by comparison. And if he kills me, I'm going to go up there to be in the glory. So who cares about that? Either way he's lost, and either way I've won. <laughs> Hallelujah! And you know, that was the revelation that took the early church through those martyrdom experiences, and they didn't even, even notice it half the time.
They said, brother, I wish I was going. He said, well, you better stay here and carry on kicking the devil in the teeth. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's what you can see. That's what makes you prophetic. We've got to see something about God and we, we proclaim it to ourselves and we proclaim it to the devil. We've got to see something about ourselves. And with this I'm going to close. I, I'll Just come with me to Numbers 13. You, you're wonderful listening people and you tempt me to take you beyond measure. Come to Numbers 13. We'll just look at this. It's the story of the spies who went into the promised land and came back and reported on what they saw. It was a wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. There was all sorts of beautiful fruit in the land, but there was a problem. The, the, the land was strong, verse 28. The people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Verse 28 of Numbers 13. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Verse 33. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in theirs. You see, they weren't seeing in the heavenlies. They were seeing themselves as measured against the powers that were against them. And they said, what we see is that we're just a little group of grasshoppers. We're little itsy-bitsy grasshoppers. And they're great big giants. And they may all lift their foot and tread on me. And I'll be finished. So I'm not going to even try to resist demonic power. Just leave me alone, devil. Don't hurt me. Oh, please leave me alone. And the Bible says that because they were like grasshoppers in their own eyes, that's the way he treated them. And with great love and respect, I want to say to you that if the devil's giving you a rough ride, you're the one to blame. If you let him walk all over you, it's because you've got a grasshopper mentality. He won't treat you like a grasshopper unless you think you are a grasshopper. We were like grasshoppers in our own eyes and therefore we were in their eyes. What you see yourself to be is the way the devil will treat you. And if we're going to be that prophetic army that takes the nations, I tell you, we've got to see ourselves to be something different to grasshoppers. And I could open up scriptures for you, but you know who you are. Do you know who you are? Who are you? Come shout something out. You're giants. Let's get some scripture. Come on, give me some scripture. I'm the, I don't believe you. Tell me some scripture. More than Congress. Where does it say that? Who's in you? And who's he? The one that's in you is greater than he that's in the world. Jesus said that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 8, it says the weakest will be like David. He's talking about this army. The weakest will be like David and united they will be like God. God! 
Hallelujah. Paul said in Galatians 3.26, he said, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ. You can ask your father for anything and he'll do it for you. We're more than conquerors of him that loved us. And so I could go on and on and on and on. Do you know who you are? Have you seen it? Is it prophetic reality? Amen? Because when you can see who you are, then you've got something to say about who you are. What you see is what you say. Amen. So, the ten spies, all they could see was that they were like grasshoppers. And as a result, they were treated like grasshoppers. Now come to chapter 14, and here is Caleb and Joshua, who've been in exactly the same situation, looking at exactly the same circumstances. And he says in verse 7, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. I didn't see all the demons and the witches' covens and the spiritists and the, you know, and the this and that. What I saw was the glory and power of God. It's a good land. It's a good land. Texas is a good land. It was created by God for Jesus. Amen? America's a good land. Mexico's a good land. Central America's a good land. South America's a good land. The world's one great good land, and it was created for one purpose, and that it was created that it might glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. It was never made for the devil to put his dirty fingerprints on it. And he's sitting there expecting that when he pours out his spirit, the army's going to rise up they're going to see prophetically what the real situation is and say, what are we doing sitting around here letting the devil walk around this earth as if he owned it? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? No wonder God loved David's heart. Oh, here's a man after my heart. Will you get that heart? It's a prophetic heart. He saw the king on his throne and he saw the rule of his great kingdom. He saw it all prophetically because his eyes were open and he could see. And so Caleb says, it's a good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. Do you believe the Lord delights in you? That's what he will do. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. We'll eat them. We'll eat them for breakfast. Now that's the same situation, a different perspective. Why was he just being brave? No, he wasn't being brave. You see, Caleb could see something. He goes on to say, For I perceive that their protection has departed from them. You see, I told you last night, let me just reinforce this, the spirit of Elisha drove off the spirit of Jezebel. And the woman who was the vehicle of that spirit, just became as weak as water. 
And the only power that there is in human activity against the purposes of God is that which is inspired by demonic strength. And once that demonic strength is taken away, those terrifying things suddenly come pathetic. Look what happened in Eastern Europe. What on earth suddenly happened? Well, I, I suggest to you, I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but you see, as I mentioned to you earlier, with 400 million spirit-filled believers all getting excited around the world, these demons are at their wit's end as to what to do about it. And so here in China is a mighty uprising with hundreds of millions getting saved, so all the demons that are responsible for propagating communism all go over to China while Europe's sleeping to try and hold down the Chinese rebellion. And while Europe's uncovered, poof! <laughs> Hallelujah! I bet there's some prince demon's got a wigging from Satan about that. I tell you, hell's at its wit's end to know how to hold down this thing that's breaking out all over the world. And say, oh, 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 please, America, don't you get the revelation. It's bad enough with the Chinese and the Africans. And a few in South America and a few in India. That's bad enough. But please, please, don't let America and don't let Europe get the revelation. Because we've got no troops left to hold them down. They're already stretched to the limit. I perceive their protection has been taken from them. And I tell you, just as communism went down in the 80s, Islam is going to go down in the 90s. God's had enough of Islam. He's going to expose it and show it to be as weak as it really is. Hallelujah. But Caleb could see. I perceive their protection is taken from them. He said, they're bred for us. Let's go in and take the land. Now that's what a prophetic people is. It's a people who can see and who are militant in spirit and understand themselves to be the army of the Lord that the resting Lord Jesus is waiting for to fulfill his eternal purpose. If we had a little taste of it, in the beginning of the church age, when this little company just turned the whole of Jerusalem and Judea into uproar and overthrew all the principalities and powers. But that wasn't the full, fullness, that was just a foretaste. And now God is raising up an army that's going to do this right around the world. Let's, let's stand and let's pray, shall we? Hallelujah. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. In the setting of the lame man being healed, it says that all those in Solomon's porch that ran together were greatly amazed. I want to read from verse 12. So when Peter saw it, 
he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. Hallelujah. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hallelujah. As I mentioned to you last night, the witness that Peter had was that he could now see in the heavenlies. It wasn't the empty tomb that made them so transformed because if you remember after Jesus was risen from the dead they were still hiding behind locked doors from the Jews. It wasn't the physical resurrection that turned them into these men of dynamic power. It was seeing what I was trying to speak to you last night. Seeing the glorious Christ on his throne in the heavenlies, the Lamb that was slain, ruling and reigning with absolute sovereign power. And the moment they saw that, there was no stopping him. What a sermon. Would you like to preach that sermon? <laughs> and man, this was to the very murderers of Jesus. And the power which it went forth and cut them to the quick. I mean, you can imagine the power of it. Hallelujah. Now in the course of that message, and that's the heart of our consideration tonight, we're told that there is a prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the scriptures are, 
and it's from verse 15 to 19, and that, as we see in this passage of Scripture, there's a clear purpose for this prophetic ministry. You'll notice in verse 21 that it's the purpose is the restoration of all things. You remember how when Jesus spoke of Elijah the prophet in Matthew 17 and verse 12, he said that when Elijah comes, what will he do? He will restore all things. And now we have this reference to this other prophet, the Deuteronomy 18 prophet, the Moses type prophet, and we're told the same thing about him, that he's going to restore all things. This is the clearly defined purpose of this prophetic ministry. And as you come down into verse 25, you see the goal of this prophetic ministry is exactly the same. The result is, there's going to be such a loosing of power across the nations that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And everything that God ever promised to Abraham and his seed is going to be fulfilled through the dynamic of this prophetic ministry. It's an essential ministry to bring to pass what God's promised to Abraham way back 2,000, in now it will be 4,000 years before the event. But God isn't that worried about time. But when it's time to move, I tell you, God moves. I was just reading some more statistics to today in the Ministries magazine. Some more things reported by Peter Wagner. Absolutely staggering. He, he calculates for what's happening around the world now that if it goes on at its present speed, by the end of this century, there will be something like 1.1 billion spirit-filled believers worldwide. And in Africa, the new power of God sweeping through the countries is just sweeping Islam out of the way. Now, I, I said to you, this is the decade when Islam is going to be thrown down. And I, I, I said it in 89, and I keep saying it because I know that's what God said to me. Something so powerful is happening in the world that it just leaves us. But when, when it's God's time, boom, he moves. He may wait 4,000 years to fulfill his word, but when it's time to fulfill his word, there's a power let loose which is so incredible. Oh, Hallelujah. All over the world, God is preparing for this word that I'm going to be sharing with you. It's already being released in the world now. It's a current now word. And we need to be able to recognize this prophetic ministry, just as we need to be able to recognize the Elisha prophetic ministry. And my purpose tonight is to show you what they are, the distinctions between them, and how they work together, and how both are necessary for all things to be restored, and for the mighty harvest to be reaped, because that's what it's all about. So that's where we're going tonight. So hang on to your seatbelts. Hallelujah. Now we're promised in verse 19 that the release of this prophetic ministry will be accompanied by times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Waves of revival, I think is the best way that I could describe it. Waves of revival. Have you heard about the great revivals and God just comes down and touches a community and changes a, a nation? Well, I tell you, this is going to be one of the features of this ministry. Hallelujah. Now, it is so important, we're told, several times in that passage of Scripture which I read to you, that all the prophets proclaim these days. 
It isn't just one little incident, it's the focus of all prophetic ministry. And when you begin to see that, you realize this must be important. We've got to understand. Look at verse 24. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. So it's not just a thing on the side, it's, it's the very central theme of all prophetic ministry. I was quite surprised when I was doing some study a few years ago to realize what a narrow time band all the prophets in the Bible uh, prophesied in. Have you ever noticed that? You go from the book of Isaiah all, through all the major prophets and then go through all the minor prophets and you're covering a time span of not more than, a, or at least they're prophesying concerning a time span of not more than 150 years. It's a tiny little phase in the whole history of Israel. And I never realized that until fairly recently. I thought, Lord, this must be a very important phase if you've given so much of your word to it. And the answer is because what does it, what does it speak about? It speaks about three things, essentially. The judgment of God's people, of a period of captivity, and then the restoration of God's people after their captivity. And as they are speaking in the immediate concerning the ethnic nation of Israel, as in typical prophetic style, they're being carried in the spirit to speak of the greater fulfillment concerning the spiritual nation of God, spiritual Israel, which we all are. And they're speaking judgment, captivity, release, and restoration. And it's so important that the prophets were seeing it and were speaking about it. Isaiah was speaking about the restoration before the captivity had even taken place. And woven into all this, he starts to speak in the most incredible insight about the Lord Jesus Christ and, and about the, 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 the zeal that he's going to take on when he takes on human flesh. It's all so gloriously woven in because the, what happened historically to ethnic Israel is a shadow a type, an allegory of what's happening spiritually to the true Israel of God, which, of course, uh, is the church. And that's why these scriptures are so important. And that's why they're so bang up to date. And while we've not experienced, most of us, physical captivity, although some parts of the world have, the church in South Korea knows all about that. And so do the communist countries. I, I had one of the teams from my church, they were in the Wenceslas Square the, the day that the Czechoslovakian government handed over power. You know, it's almost exactly to the day, 50 years, when the Germans marched into Czechoslovakia. The year, I thought, the year of Jubilee. Yeah. Hallelujah. And God gave them their release. And, and we, we simply do not know what to do with all the wide open doors of opportunity. And that church doesn't know what to do with the hunger for God which is suddenly being manifested in these nations. A mighty revival will sweep across Europe starting from the east. That's my opinion. I'm not saying I've had an angel say this to me. It's simply my opinion. Because there's a ripeness and a hunger there which I have not yet detected generally in Western Europe. Most of Western Europe is still joined to its materialism. 
But all the prophets have spoken to these days. Judgment, captivity, release, and restoration. And it would seem to me that now God is sending, as I said last night, the, 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 the army of his spirit to undo the ravagings of the army of the Chaldeans. And it's much more powerful. If that army was powerful, this is infinitely more powerful. If that could do so much devastation, this can do so much restoration. Amen? Hallelujah. That's the way with God. What we lost in Adam, we've more than received back in Christ. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. So these are important days. All the prophets proclaim these days from Samuel. Isaiah through Malachi all essentially spoke on this one theme. The judgment, captivity and restoration of God's people. They were con- they were, these prophets were not so much concerned with the war, but they are more concerned with the, the building and the government. They spoke of a new temple. They spoke of the rebuilding of the cities. They spoke of a, of a new glory, of a new rule, of a new authority. These are the themes that come again and again and again in these scriptures. There's a restoration of a glorious spiritual nation and a glorious spiritual temple and glorious spiritual cities with incredible power. That's what they're seeing in the spirit. And a scepter's got to go forth from from spiritual Zion, to bring the rule of God across the nations. Hallelujah. Now, this prophetic ministry of what's called that prophet was the focus of all that they've prophesied. Now, if you go into the New Testament with me just for a few moments, I I could turn you to many scriptures, but let's go to uh, John chapter 1. For example, I could turn you to many scriptures here. Verse 19 of John chapter 1. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then they said to him, What are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And they said, No. Who are you that we may give an answer to those who send us? He said, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. And then in verse 25, and they asked him saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, if you are not Elijah, and if you are not the prophet? Now I could turn you to verse after verse after verse that's picking up this theme. That the people of God were expecting these three prophetic people to appear. They were looking for the Christ, they were looking for the Elijah, and they were looking for the prophet, and they made clear distinction between the two of them. They knew they weren't the same. They didn't know what they were, but they knew that what God had said through Moses was not the same as what God had said through Malachi. And as they saw, they were trying to fit him in. Now, it, was, it seemed evident that even John didn't know who he was because he didn't say, yes, I'm the Elijah. Afterwards, Jesus said he was. He said, I'm just a voice preparing the way of the Lord. I didn't know who I am. I tell you, there's lots of people already in ministry today. They don't know who they are. 
But I tell you, some of them are, are already beginning to be brought by the Spirit into the Elisha ministry that he's spoken about, which, as I told you the first night, is the double portion of the Elijah ministry. It's really the Spirit of Elijah in double power. Necessary to destroy the evil work of Jezebel in the church. And there are others who they don't know it, but they are the preparation of God to fulfill this prophecy that that prophet's going to come and that that prophet is going to be used of God along with the Elisha prophet for the restoration of all things and for the gathering in of the most mighty harvest the church ever, ever has seen or ever will see. There's never going to be days like this again. Now, Jesus on earth, obviously, was the early, incomplete fulfillment of that scripture. Now, did you hear what I say? I'm not disrespecting the Lord Jesus. I'm just recognizing the fact that along with all these other prophecies that I'm dealing with, he fulfilled it locally to the Jewish people. He said, I am sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His ministry was to the Jews and not to the world. Not that he hadn't got a heart for the world, but he was fulfilling God's order and God's plan and fulfilling God's type. That all these prophetic scriptures had to first be fulfilled in a limited way in amongst the Jewish people at the beginning of the church age to give us a taste of what it was going to be like when it came to its full world dimension at the end of the church age. And so when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3 and picks up by inspiration of the Holy Spirit this scripture out of Deuteronomy and picks up the prophetic word of Moses, he says to them, now this is Jesus. He's that prophet. Amen? He's that prophet. He was the first fulfillment. He then ascended into heaven to bring the ministry of that prophet to an even greater measure. So now he's in heaven expecting till all his enemies be made his footstool of his feet and he's going to stay in heaven until this thing's done because that's what Acts 3 says. I don't expect Jesus to come back tonight. Because I believe the Bible. <laughs> it says it there. Heaven must receive him until... The restoration of all things. And so his return is going to come as a glorious consummation of the effective fulfillment of that prophetic ministry of the Moses-type prophet. Now that's so clear to me from Scripture. And I see the whole of God's strategy is tooling up to that end. And I am so excited. I, could, I can't even sleep. My son, who called me again today, and he's quite prophetic, just 17 years of age, he just shared with me how he'd been awake all night with God speaking to him things. He, he, he sent me a five-page telex of what God had said to him. It's absolutely staggering what God is showing young people today. Staggering. And he said, he's doing his exams. He said, I couldn't bother about the exams. All I could think about was, 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 was the excitement of what God's doing in the world, Dad. <laughs> I thought, what a wonderful son to have, I tell you. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'd rather he was like that than had all the degrees that all of us in all the world could give. I said, son, 
I said, son, I'm not, I don't even, I said, I know you've worked hard, I know you've been very diligent, I said, I don't even care if you fail your exams. I said, so long as you're a man of God, that's all I'm worrying about. As long as you're available to God. Hallelujah. So God's tooling up and preparing. So then Jesus ascended into heaven to bring the ministry of that prophet to even greater measure through his new body, the church, so that all is fulfilled and all is restored. So this Moses prof- prophetic ministry, which was typed, if you like, and, or, or it was initiated in the person of Jesus, it's now coming to fullness in the church at the end of the age. Now, of course, the source of it all is Jesus, because he is the great apostle, he's the great prophet, he's the great evangelist, he's the great pastor, and he's the great teacher. Every ministry gift in the church is there because it flows out of the risen Christ. That's what we're told in Ephesians chapter 4. It's nothing that we have, it's just that we are a channel for the continuing prophetic ministry of that mighty Moses prophet who's now ascended into the heavens. And he's just continuing to function on a wider basis through his new body the church hallelujah Moses said he will be a prophet like me that's what he said Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 if we want to identify this prophetic ministry we have to look at what was unique about Moses in these end time days these two prophetic ministries are going to be working powerfully side by side. We're going to have the Elijah Elisha ministry and we're going to have the Moses prophet ministry. They each have a different part to play, but they both have the same purpose. And that purpose is the restoration of all things and the fulfilling of all that God promised to Abraham. What did he promise to Abraham? A harvest as Numerous as the stars in the sky for number. A harvest as, as large as all the grains of sand on the seashore. Can you imagine that? Has it happened yet? He promised Abraham, according to Romans chapter 4 and verse 13, that he and his seed, they would inherit the whole world. Hallelujah. That's some promises. He promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 that through him and his seed all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So there's not going to be a family on earth that's not going to be touched by the effect of this ministry. That's how I read that scripture. I don't expect them all to be saved. Maybe I haven't got enough faith. But I do expect them to be impacted by this ministry. And, and, and experience blessing because of the power of this ministry. It's going to change society so dramatically that the effect of it is going to touch every single family on the face of the earth. Now, isn't that wonderful? I mean, I can't imagine what that means, can you? Does it mean that everybody's going to be healed? I don't know what it means. But I'm, I've got my seatbelt on and I'm ready for anything. I believe the Word of God. I believe that what God promised to Abraham, he's going to absolutely, literally, and totally fulfill. And it hasn't happened yet. But it's going to happen. And these two ministries, according to Scripture, have got a part to play in the fulfillment of these great prophecies. So let's now look at what was unique about Moses, and then see how these two ministries work together. 
I want to give you very quickly some of the qualities of the Moses prophet. I'm not going to be able to develop it. There's not just not enough time. Number one, he had a personal call. He knew he was called of God. Only false prophets call themselves. And so one of the marks of these Moses prophets is they're going to be taken hold of by God and they're going to know it. It's not simply speaking prophetic words in the church, but they're called by God as sovereignly as, as it's possible to know how for this purpose. And round the world now, God has already got them prepared and they know they're calling. They're just waiting for the moment of release. Secondly, there's a long training. Some of them have been, have been in preparation for, for decades. It took 40 years for Moses to learn all the wisdom of Egypt, and it took 40 years for God to knock it out of him again. Amen? And he wasn't ready for his ministry until he was 80. So hang on, folks. <laughs> so I'm just about working up towards being almost ready in a decade or two for God to use me. Amen? You think I'm joking. I'm dead serious. There was a long training. And I know God's tucked some of these men away in little places where no one knows about them and it's God's intention that they shouldn't know about them. And they're being got ready. And I tell you, they will move in a totally different way to some of the things that we've been used to. The next thing I notice is the, the requirement of implicit obedience. Have you ever thought how severe God was on Moses? When all he did was to speak one phrase irritably and that cost him the promised land. Have you ever thought about that? God said, speak to the rock. He hit it twice because he was so annoyed with the people of God. And he said, must I get water out of this rock for you rebels? And that was enough to disqualify him from the promised land. Can you see the standard? Let's move on. He was deeply taught of God. I haven't time to develop that, but you know how he just walked with God and had a face-to-face -face relationship with God. He was God's friend. He had an amazing prayer life and he had an incredible compassion for those who were lost. He was the one that said, Lord, take me out of your book, but save them. For that rebellious bunch that you and I wouldn't even want to share a three-day convention with. Well, I wouldn't. <laughs> Perhaps you would. <laughs> and as a result of this, he understood God's ways. It says in Exodus 33, 13, it says, the people, this is God speaking, the people saw my works, but Moses knew my ways. Now, most of Christendom is just excited to see God do anything supernatural. They'll come in their thousands to see a word of knowledge that's, that's exciting or a healing that's exciting. They'll come and they'll, they'll be excited with the manifestations of God. But how many people really want to know his ways and want to seek his face? You say, we're going to have a week of prayer and fasting to seek the face of God. And it's going to be cheap because there's no food to pay for. You won't get thousands and thousands queuing up to get into such a convention. 
but you let it be known that there's going to be some mighty words of knowledge and incredible manifestations of these things, exciting as they are. I'm not against these things. I'm just saying they're not the foundation, that's all. And as we, we can guarantee lots of mighty miracles will take place. You'll find that thousands and thousands will come flocking. It was the d- same in the day of Jesus. It's still the same today. But the Moses ministry will have the same quality about it. And how beautifully that was fulfilled in Jesus, wasn't it? Now let me say a few things about him, which make him different to all the other Old Testament prophets. First of all, he was a shepherd of the people. He was not a lonely, insular figure like most of the other prophets were. They would come out of a cave and speak the word of God and disappear again. Moses was right there in amongst the people, shepherding. Now that was unique. There's no other prophet like this. Secondly, he built a nation out of a rabble of slaves, right? He worked on people and produced... Just imagine the job of taking that bunch of renegade rabble slaves out on a long journey and being able to say to them, right, get them all organized to put up the tabernacle and to take it down. And if God's cloud moved the same day, having spent all day and all night putting it up, they had to spend all day and all night taking it down again. Now you can imagine, does this guy know what he's doing? Or where he's going. Can you imagine the rebellion in the ranks? Of this crazy leader who keeps saying, right, put it up, take it down, put it up, take it down. Whether it was for a day or for a month or for a year, they never knew where they were going or how long they were going to stay, but they just learned to follow their leader. And they were so organized that each party knew what to do, and I guess they really got it down to a fine T as to just how to put that thing up and take it down again. But can you see the training that went on? And what it produced. So he built a nation out of a rabble of slaves. He instituted government, rule, administration. He established leadership. He allocated function. And he caused them to move in orderly obedience. I could talk for an hour on the miracle of what God did as a, as a leader of people in the wilderness. And no prophet ever did anything like that. Thirdly, he built a tabernacle. It was built by delegated, skilled men to a definite God-given design. Basiliel and Aholiab were specially anointed for this, but everything they did, they brought it for Moses, for Moses to check it out, because he had the pattern from God. And not a thing went into that tabernacle that wasn't first checked out to make sure it was according to the pattern that God showed him on the mount, even to the last silver hook on the curtains. It had to be right. Now that's the way God is, and he was the man that saw that things were done the way that God wants them done. And he built a temple, he built a a tabernacle, and we know from Hebrews 3 what God thought about it. We're coming on to that in a moment. But everything was just as the Lord commanded Moses. He not only was totally obedient himself, but he produced obedience in the people. In the respect of building. So Moses then was an architect, builder, shepherd. That's how I would describe him. And he was so different to most of the other prophets and very different from Elisha the prophet. Can you see the difference? I'm coming on to it in much more detail in a moment. 
So Jesus comes to his church as the fulfillment and source of this New Testament prophet. Just come with me to Hebrews chapter 3 for a moment. We've already looked at Acts 3, and we see there that Jesus is the Moses, uh, the, prop, the fulfillment of the Moses prophet. You come to Acts 3, we're then to look at Moses, the apostolic builder. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He wasn't only a prophet, he wasn't only a king, he was also an apostle. The Bible says so. He is the model apostle. And he is prophetic in his ap- ap- apostle, apostleship or his apostolate. That's the, the driving force of his apostolic ministry. Have you got it? Because that's the kind of apostolic ministry that's going to produce this restoration of all things. And it's going to release the power into the body of Christ which will reap the harvest. We're told in verse 2 that he was faithful to him who appointed him. This is speaking of Jesus, but in the same verse it then speaks of Moses, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. They're being compared side by side. Moses, Jesus. Jesus, Moses. They're both prophetic. They're both apostolic. They're both builders. They're both listening to Father. They're doing exactly what God says. One's building an earthly tabernacle, which is a shadow. The other is building a heavenly tabernacle, which is the reality. But one's a picture of the other. Can you see that? Verse 5. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. So this is a, a testimony to something that's going to have powerful spiritual reality at the end of the age. Because we're told this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and I think it's verse 13 that all these things were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Talking about these very things. Can you see that? I've just got to drop seeds in quickly here. There's not time to develop all these things. So all the time this was going on, God was thinking ahead to those end days when he's going to bring everything to conclusion. As Moses functioned as a prophet, and as Moses functioned as an apostle, and God shaped him and caused him to work, he was actually just living out a a parable of Jesus the great apostle, and Jesus the great prophet, and there was going to be the final great release in all its fullness in his new body, the church, at the end of the age. And it was all towards those days. It says it in 1 Corinthians 10. It's all written for that purpose. And we've got to learn from their example, because what happened to them? They died in the wilderness through disobedience. That's what we're being warned about. Don't miss it. You could be part of this great Moses uh, movement. You could be part of Moses' army. You could be part of Moses' building team. You can build a great glorious temple that's going to herald in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or you could miss it and die in the wilderness, beloved. It's all written for our instruction. They murmured. They grumbled. They sought to satisfy fleshy appetites. And they missed it. And died in the wilderness. And never ever participated in that glorious, glorious purpose of God. I tell you, it's written to warn us that we don't do the same thing. 
And if there's one thing that I don't want, I want to do, is I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to get diverted into anything that misses. To be born in this day and then to miss it. What a terrible thing to happen to any one of us. To actually, the things that the prophets were looking into and the angels have been excited about for, for thousands of years and to actually be part of the people that are going to be allowed to do it. And then to miss it. And to die in a spiritual wilderness. I can't think of anything worse to live with for all eternity, can you? And my cry is, oh God, God, I don't want to miss it. We find in Ephesians 2.20 that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Built, and the church is built on, an, on a foundation of apostles and prophets. If you can imagine this, if I had a, 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 I'd draw a diagram, but I want you to imagine that I'm the chief, I'm representing Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Here I am, and from one side is going out apostolic ministry, and from the other side is going out prophetic ministry, and forming the foundation, and flowing out from Jesus this way is the continuing apostolic ministry, and flowing out from Jesus this way is the continuing prophetic ministry. It begins with the first 12 apostles, but then it becomes people like James and Paul and, and Adronicus and Junior and all sorts of people who are not part of the foundational 12, but they're a continuation of the apostolic ministry. And then we have, we have Silas and we have Agabus and other New Testament prophets flowing out this way. So from the foundation of these prophets and apostles, the whole church is built. And if that's not there, there's no foundation. And it all falls down. And the thing that makes their apostleship legitimate, and the thing that makes their prophetic ministry legitimate, is because it's just Jesus continuing in his body. So in another way of looking at it, there is just one foundation, and that's Jesus. It's all Jesus. Peter, when he came to heal Aeneas, didn't say, Aeneas, this is the greatest apostle in the world, come to heal you. He said, Aeneas, Jesus heals you. He knew who he was. He, he was just simply a means of Jesus continuing his ministry. That's all he was. And that's all Jesus needed. Was willing nothings who would do what they were told. Hallelujah. Amen. So the ministry of this kind of prophet is very close to the apostolic ministry and it's different from the Elijah-Elisha ministry I was talking about to you on uh, Sunday night. In fact, as I already said, Moses and Jesus were clearly both apostle and prophet. And the New Testament often speaks of the apostolic and prophetic partnership working together to build the church. In fact, we're told in Ephesians 2.20, I just quoted it to you, it's the foundation on which everything has to be built. If you come with me to Ephesians chapter 3, let's go to Ephesians for a few moments. and We'll look up some scriptures there. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul speaking from verse 2. If indeed... You have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. So the whole of Paul's ministry and the whole of his revelation is entirely a matter of grace. Amen? 
It's, it was the, it's the release of God's gift, free of charge, without deserving it, through a man, but the purpose of it was not to make Paul big, but to make the church blessed. Amen. It was given to me for you, not to rip you off, but to serve you. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So they need to come together to receive revelation. And I would to God that this scripture will be taken seriously. Notice two things. It's apostles and prophets together. They're both necessary to get the full revelation. And notice that it's in the plural. Apostles and prophets. So there's a gathering together of these guys to just be together in the presence of God until God gives them revelation. And the third thing I want you to notice is that they were holy. Which means that they were, in the strict meaning of the word, they were set apart exclusively for the use of God. They decided they were going to be available for God and for nothing else. Not for men, not for money, not for fame, just for God. If God wanted to take them into the back of nowhere, they'd go to the back of nowhere. Whatever God wanted to do with them, they were God's men. For whatever, wherever, whenever, without any regard for whether it was comfortable, convenient, or anything else. Holy, beloved. Isn't a sort of a pious look on your face with a light like a stained glass window like that? That isn't being holy. Holy is saying, God, here's my body. You can do with it what you like, and it's totally available to you 100% of the day and 100% of the night. It's a, it's a decision that you can make tonight. If you haven't made it, make it tonight. God, I'm going to be Holy. My body and my gifts and my abilities, they're just given to you as a living sacrifice, which is only a reasonable thing to do. Amen? And if anybody ought to do that, it's the apostles and prophets. And because they were holy, and because they were taking time off their busy schedules to get together and seek the face of God, he gave them revelation. And the most important issue of the church was decided by revelation, not by debating the thing endlessly in some theological seminary. They got before God and said, God, what's your judgment? He said, the Gentiles and the Jews are all one in Christ. And that revelation was vital for the church. God revealed many other mysteries too. So let me now just quickly sketch out for you a comparison of the two prophets. I've got about seven characteristics of each of them. First of all, the Elijah-Elisha ministry. First of all, he's a loner. Do you understand what I mean by that word? He, he, he just walks alone and uh, just doesn't really need to relate to anybody else. He moves in a powerful word of knowledge. He's mystical. And identified by many amazing supernatural signs. Not national events, but just 
more the personal things. Do you understand the difference? In Scripture, by the way, it's recorded against the name of Elisha, 14 miracles, with two people being raised from the dead. And against Elijah, there are seven miracles, with one person raised from the dead. Isn't that interesting? He got exactly what he asked for, double. Interesting, isn't it? thought you'd like that. This Elijah, Elisha ministry is, is at war with demonic darkness, confronting demonic darkness, at war with demonic darkness, attacking and conquering demonic strongholds and discerning demonic strategy. Shall I repeat that? Was that a bit quick for you? Let me repeat it again. This ministry is at war with demonic darkness, attacking and conquering demonic strongholds and discerning demonic strategy. So if you like, this ministry is up there. If you like, it's God's heightened radar system. Going, what's the devil up to? Where is he? We'll knock his lights out. <laughs> and so if you like, it's, it's in, a, in the right healthy sense, it's demonically directed to destroy and pull down all the works of darkness. And to expose his works and to re reveal his weaknesses and, and to cause the people of God to rise up and wage war and destructive warfare upon the powers and principalities in Jesus' name. Real rabble-raisers are the Elisha ministries. They get everybody shouting and hollering and wanting to kick the devil's teeth in and want to go to war, and, and, and it's a great ministry. But that's the, the direction of it. And the guy will just go from place to place, and he'll just be a, you know, he'll be him. He's a unique individual, and you've just got to learn to live with him. Or better live without him. I mean, better not to live with him. <laughs> Because I know some of these guys. I, I mean, I'm not going to mention any names, but as, you, as I describe it, you say, cool, that's exactly like so-and-so. Because that's exactly who they are. They may not know they're Elijah or Elisha yet. Some of them are still in the Elijah stage and coming into the Elisha double portion. Some of them are only in between the two. But you can recognize them. I know them. Now, in contrast to that, here is the Moses type prophetic ministry. You know, I want to say this, that in the United States and in South Africa, this kind of prophetic ministry is hardly recognized as being prophetic. People call the prophet the Elisha type. They, he's understood and he's received and people get excited about him and rightly so. But here are the, the characteristics of the Moses type prophet. Number one, he's not mystical. He'll wear an ordinary suit and look ordinary. He doesn't particularly move in the word of knowledge. He's practical. He's a shepherd, a relator to people. He's a leader of people. He's a builder of the kingdom and of the city and of the people. And that's where it's hard sometimes to distinguish him from the apostle. But I'm coming on to that in a moment. I'll tell you how you can tell the difference. 
He sees the plan. If you like, he's, he's a man who can see into the heavens and he doesn't see the devil and want to kick his teeth in. He looks into heavens and sees the glorious city of God and wants to build it. Have you got the difference? The Elisha will see demonic powers and want to go against them and, and take them out in the name of Jesus. The Moses prophet will see the need to gather to the people together, to inspire them, to sort out their gifts and their ministries, and to put them to work in order that the city might be built. And the kingdom's established. And they're concerned with government and rule and authority and order and principles of church life. See, oh, isn't that an apostle? Almost, there's such an overlap that it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. I'll tell you what the difference is in a minute. They build people, and the end product is to produce a disciplined army of people who are like the Nehemiah army. They work with a sword and with a trowel in each hand. They are warrior builders or builder warriors. There is an army dimension to this. Have you got the picture? But they, they're going to stay on the walls and builds and, uh, and no one's going to take them away from the task because they've seen the city and that city's going to come up. And they give themselves to that. Now in the New Testament, a classic example of the Elijah-Elisha ministry is Agabus the prophet who came and appeared and with words of knowledge and told Paul that he was going to be in prison and he did this prophetic sign with his girdle and all, and all these sort of things and he just comes and goes, he told them there was going to be a, a, a famine and there was, he's, he's moving in this word of knowledge business and seeing you know, supernatural signs and all that kind of stuff and a classic uh, Moses type prophet would be Silas who went with Paul and when they made the decree at, in, in um, Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 it was, it, two prophets went along to inspire the people in the churches, to, to build the churches the way it had been shown them in Jerusalem. So there's a prophetic ministry which inspires people to build, as well as a prophetic ministry which inspires people to kill the devil. <laughs> Both are necessary. Amen? I'm a bit of both. <laughs> Now, let me go on to my next statement. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. How we, oh, we, time just flies. Okay, I won't be more than three hours. No, I'll be, I can do it another 10 or 15 minutes. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. Well, read verse 27. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has set these or appointed these in the church. First apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers, and after that, miracles and then gifts of healing. So God has clearly set in the church an order and it is a governmental order that he set there. And if we ignore that governmental order, we do so at our peril and it causes all sorts of chaos in the church. And how many workers of miracles do you know who are subject to that kind of governmental authority and as a result are safe from being led astray by the wiles of the devil? 
Rather, we know so many that started well and finished in a mess for ignorance of this, ignoring of this very scripture. Amen? Now, God has set in the church first apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers, before the power men even get a look in. Is that not what the scripture says? And what happens is we, we make gods out of the power men and they are accountable and answerable to nobody and it's not surprising if after a while the devil can deceive them and trap them and they cease to move in their wonderful ministry. I tell you, it, doesn't, it breaks my heart, but I tell you, a day's coming now when God's going to get things in order. This is part of that prophetic ministry, to put things in order. And of course, it's part of the... Apostle, but what you'll often find is that the prophet is the voice that inspires the people. And it's the apostle who can get his hands on the thing and make it happen. I'll come on to this more in a moment. Explain how the two relate, because it's very important. But all I want to say at this point is that it is essential for prophetic ministry to function under the authority of apostles, as indeed it's true of all other gift ministry. Even Agabus, for example, had a correct revelation concerning the imprisonment of Paul, but he came to a wrong conclusion about it. If Agabus had had his way, he wouldn't have let Paul go to Jerusalem to be put in chains. And indeed, all the church agreed with him. It was all said, oh, Paul, Paul, please don't obey this. Don't listen to this word, don't go. He said, I've already heard from God about this. Let's just look at the scriptures and look that up. Just a moment. Come with me to Acts 21. Just give it to you as an, an example of how a pure, wonderful, Elisha-type ministry can get a true revelation from from God. And if it's not corrected by apostolic wisdom, it would lead the whole church astray. Can you hear me? Because we need to hear this very loudly, beloved. Acts chapter 21, verse 9, verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, and he was dead right, it was what the Holy Spirit was saying. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So it was a right revelation, but it was a wrong conclusion. If you read the book of Ephesians, you will find Paul knows perfectly well that this imprisonment has a divine purpose and he's right smack in the middle of God's will in being in prison when he was. If you go back to Acts 20, while he was speaking to the elders at Ephesus, he said to them, I already know that chains and imprisonment await me, but I'm quite prepared to lose my life for the gospel. I know what's in front of me. I understand exactly what God's got ahead. It's God that's got it ahead for some divine purpose, probably that he might spend two or three years in the, in the Roman household and infect the whole of the Roman Empire with the gospel of the kingdom. Another thing he did while he was in prison was that he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, the most wonderful prophetic letter of the church that I've ever... That, that, well, it is. It's a great... I mean, I, he, had got it, he had to sort of have a little uh, sabbatical in prison. He was fed and clothed and looked after while he just wrote and meditated. And God used it to bring revelation which has fed the church for the next 2,000 years. So what seemed like madness was actually smack in the middle of God's world. 
Now the Agabus prophet had a right revelation of the Holy Spirit, but he hadn't got the wisdom to handle what had been revealed. And if he had just been there alone, he would have said, church, 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 and all the church would have followed him in that which was not the will of God, although it was right revelation. And often what goes wrong with these ministries isn't that the, the revelation's wrong, it's the interpretation of the revelation. Because it has not been submitted to apostolic wisdom. And, let's, and as these ministries increase and become even more powerful, there's all the more need to put it under proper governmental authority. Amen? You can tell I feel very strongly about this. Right. So, the Elisha Agabus type prophet must submit his revelation. And I would suggest, according to Scripture, that it's first done in private. I'll show you in a minute, that's what Paul did with his revelation. Although he was who he was, he followed his own rules. And so it's first in private. I am not at all happy for these revelations to be just belted out in a great conference when it's not been checked out against apostolic wisdom. Although I believe they're true words. Most of them are true words from God. You see, what you've got to see here is that these men are moving on the very fringe. They're way out beyond most of us in a sensitivity to God that we know nothing about. I know a little bit about it, but not to the degree that these men do. If I can give you an illustration. Imagine that, that the, w there's a, invented a new radar system that can detect an enemy aircraft 500 miles away, tell you what kind of aircraft it is, what kind of armament it's carrying, and all, it can even read the computer inside the aeroplane to tell you what they intend to do. Now that would be a very marvellous piece of equipment, wouldn't it? But because it's so far out on the fringe of things, it's very sensitive to interference. By the very nature of its sensitivity, it's bound to pick up the slightest interference. And the problem is, is getting a pure signal. Got it? So what do you do? The first thing you do is you put, you put at least three machines simultaneously and see what they're all saying corporately. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, the thing shall be established. Amen? So as we start to move in these whole realms of sensory, which is going to unmask the devil's strategy, long before he even gets near us to attack us with that strategy, just like Elisha could tell the king of Israel what the king of Syria was even thinking in his bedroom, we need this kind of gifting in the church. But by its very nature, it's right out on the fringe of spiritual sensitivity. And it's very, very vulnerable to interference. Now, don't judge these men. I tell you, they hear incredible things from God. And it doesn't surprise me at all that if occasionally a counterfeit signal is picked up. What we need now is a filter system which filters out the erroneous that we might hold fast to that which is good. Because that's what the Bible tells us to do. It says, test everything and hold fast to that which is good. And one of God's primary sources of filter is having several prophets. Let the prophets, plural, judge. That's what it says in the Bible. Let the prophets judge. And then let that, which is discerned to be a true signal, a true revelation of God, let it then be submitted to apostolic wisdom. And then we'll be a lot safer than we've previously been. And I tell you, we're going to get so sharp on what the devil's up to. 
that he didn't even breathe in hell without us knowing all about it. <laughs> Hallelujah. Can you see it? All right, so the Moses-type prophet should work with an apostle. The, the Elisha-type prophet, the Agabist, he submits his revelations to the apostle and to a judgment of prophets. But the Moses-type uh, prophet, he actually works side by side with the apostle, just like Paul and Silas went together everywhere. It's his revelations to the apostle and to a judgment of prophets. But the Moses-type uh, prophet, he actually works side by side with the apostle, just like Paul and Silas went together everywhere. Some men are, if you like, by their life flow, they are Moses' prophets by their building skills, but they become apostolic by developing the necessary wisdom to handle. It would still be very, for them to handle their, their propheticness, it would still be very dangerous for them to walk alone. They might be prophetic, and apostolic, and I know such men who, who are, like they're, they're Moses' prophets and their apostolic ministries all rolled into one, just like Paul was, just like Jesus, of course, is the great example. But they still mustn't walk alone. We all need accountability. And Paul, of course, was the great example. He still checked out with his peers. Come to Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation, and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But privately, did you notice that? But privately, to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run, or had run in vain. Now we know from chapter 1 and verse 11 and 12 where this revelation came from. Verse 11, But I made known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I never received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it would appear that in those three years in the backside of the wilderness or at some point on the way, he had direct revelation of Jesus Christ. When he speaks on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I have this, the Lord himself revealed this to me. He didn't learn it in a Bible school, didn't do a, a correspondence course on it. The Lord himself taught him. And yet such is his respect for apostolic authority and such is his respect for corporate wisdom and such is his recognition of the deceiving ways of the devil that he still takes it to his peers for checking out before he starts to preach it publicly. He shares it with them privately. He says, brothers, are you happy? Is there anything you have to say in, in way of correction? He said, well, I've heard from Jesus. I don't need any man to tell me. No, that wasn't his heart. And for that very reason... He was a safe man to receive revelation from. Amen? Have you got it? Okay. Let me just now quickly list the weaknesses in the Moses prophetic ministry compared with the apostle. This helps us to distinguish between the two. You may know some people saying, well, is he a Moses apostle? Is he a Moses prophet? Or is he an apostle? Well, this may help you to distinguish. 
I've got six things here. Number one, he often gets the timing wrong. These are some of the characteristics of this kind of prophetic ministry. I know some of them well. Very well. He often gets the timing wrong. Number two, he lacks the perseverance and patience of the apostle. He wants it done quick, today if possible. Remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12? The signs of a true apostle were done among you. What was done among him? All signs and wonders with much patience. You see, the patience of an apostle is a sign and a wonder of its own. Well, it is. And you can't be apostolic without a divine patience because I tell you, if, it, if, it, if a guy is just a Moses prophet, he will get frustrated and try and make the thing happen and wreck the whole thing. And that patience is just as important to an apostle as the signs and wonders. Otherwise, he can't do his job. Number three, he lacks wisdom in terms of strategy and logistics. He can see this, he's like an architect. He can see this beautiful building, he can even draw it for you, but to actually make it happen, he hasn't got a clue. I mean, I used to be like this, and I remember preaching, and people said, oh, it's wonderful, how do we do it? I said, I haven't got a clue, but isn't it wonderful? <laughs> So you can envision the people, but you can't tell them the strategy steps and the logistics steps to get the thing actually done in practice. Okay? And so you may know some people that are teaching on the city and are teaching on the kingdom and are teaching on apostles and prophets and teaching all these things, and yet can they do it? No, they can't. Well, what are they? It's a good question. I'm not going to... I'll leave you to make your own decision. <laughs> Number four. Another characteristic, they lack wisdom in identifying and choosing leaders. Never allow a Moses prophet to appoint your elders. It's disaster. Hear me, I'm serious. It's happening right now in the United States. Never allow a Moses prophet to select your leadership because it's not their gifting. They don't see people in that intimate sense. All they see is the vision, and they see, oh, he's good, I can put him in there to get that done. But his eyes on that, not on him. He's a means to an end. He doesn't really stop long enough to, to be taken up with the person himself. Because ap apostles must carry a pastoral dimension with them. All right? Let me go on to the next one. He wants to get the job done quickly, and so he takes risks and often comes unstuck. I'm exhibit A. <laughs> and through the pain of these things, by the grace of God, I've learned some apostolic wisdom. That's what I know, what makes these guys tick. And I can, I can smell them, a mile, I can spot them a mile off. I said, well, that was just like me 10 or 15 years ago. Just the same. I know, I know the next mistake you're going to make because I did it. <laughs> Number six, these men will have flaws in their doctrine and their theology. Some of them, I could pull my hair out when I listened to them theologically. They're 
inspirational visionaries, but doctrinally and theologically, you can go, you know. Okay? Now, let me just com contrast that now by saying, here are his strengths compared with the apostle. This is what he has, which apostles usually don't have. Remember they said of Paul in 2 Corinthians and chapter 10, um, they said his 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 words are weighty when he writes but his speech is contemptible they said oh he's he's no great preacher you know lots of god's greatest apostles are not great preachers but they're mighty builders and if you will sit and listen to their not brilliant preaching they'll drop some pearls of wisdom that are worth waiting for but on the other hand a prophet has a much generally speaking has a much more powerful preaching gift he stirs and moves the people inspirationally. So it's very easy, you can see, for, the, for the, the prophet to override the apostle because of his greater public ministry gift. And he can even think that he's over the apostle because he's not so impressive publicly. Remember, that's why Paul said, well, we're apostles, we're last. You know, we're just at the end of the trial because you know, we don't have... All, I mean, Paul was probably bald-headed, cross-eyed, not need. He wasn't... <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he possibly had a speech impediment I had also things suggested from little hints in scripture and yet boy when it came to wisdom of building there wasn't a man to touch him in the world but you wouldn't have him for your mighty inspirational convention you'd put him on the third seminar at the end of the last day in the little tiny room where about 40 people would go. And that would be the mighty apostle because people can't see or understand the power of the gifting in these men because it's not immediately publicly obvious. But you get near him, have a meal with him, sit down and let the wisdom begin to drop into your eyes and say, God, we need this man. We need his wisdom. That's often where he's at his strongest, is dealing with small groups of leaders and just showing them how to build the church. He'll take the prophetic vision and turn it into a whole series of practicalities. He'll pour the cement and raise up the steelwork and inspire all the builders and it'll get done while the prophet's still preaching. Isn't it glorious? If only we could have a building like this. <laughs> Whereas he's covered in cement and dirt actually getting it done. Amen? The, the prophet will often preach with far, and has naturally, a far greater boldness and courage. And he'll be ready to lead a cavalry charge against the devil any time. Now we need all these ministries to get the job done. And they all need each other. And they all need to come into proper order. And it's going to take a miracle of God's grace to bring the church and the ministers into proper order. But if we start to recognize how vital these things are, and particularly these ministries do, then I tell you, before long, we're going to have everything in place. And all that the prophets ever spoke about is going to be fulfilled in our day. Isn't it exciting? Isn't it exciting? So let's pray. Let's pray now. I want us to pray. Let, let's stand. Let's stand. And I want you to lift your heart and say, Oh God, you've, you've, you've opened my, if it's true, you've opened my eyes tonight. 
And God, we see in a new way the absolute vitalness of these ministries being released. We pray, God, would you release in the United States Elijah, Elisha ministries, Moses prophets, Lord, that, th that through these ministries we might see the restoration of all things, that a mighty harvest might be gathered in. And all that you ever promised Abraham might be fulfilled in our day. Come on, let's pray.